0: Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? if you've been working in the field for a while do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year are you even sure you're providing the right and best most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients are you sick of paying up to five hundred dollars for courses that teach you about just one of the many many conditions you need to stay up to date on Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers.
1: My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the Med SLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have encur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the MedSLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it.
2: I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the MedSLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously we wanna work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills, But my entire career, I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes, and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well, and that's not something I always was very confident in, and the MEDLCP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just some other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician.
3: Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University, and there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective, and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need. And I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive collaborative environment can't say enough
0: about it. If you're interested in joining us, enrollment opens December 9th. You can go to medslpcollective.com and either get on the waiting list or if it is past December 9th, you can join. So um, enrollment will be open from December 9th through December 13th. So I hope you'll join us then at medslpcollective.com. This is episode 116 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Georgia Malandraki, who is back for part two of her wonderful series on neurophysiology of the swallow. Uh, now, part one was more of the foundational and theoretical knowledge, and today's part two is more of the clinical application part of the topic. So, if you are even interested in learning more, Dr. Georgia Malandraki is going to be presenting a full webinar to members of the med Collective next week wednesday december 11th and we open enrollment for the collective on monday december 9th so if you're interested in joining that webinar and having full access to everything that the metslp collective has to offer uh, please consider joining us at metslpcollective.com you can get on a waiting list just to remember for monday (laughs) or we'll also email you monday to remind you so uh, hope to see you then and hope you really enjoy this episode Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. You, you just kind of touched on neuroplasticity a little bit. Yes. Could you kind of explain that a little bit more? Because it's still a foreign concept, I think, to a lot of people. Yeah.
4: Oh, OK. I, th- I thought that it was pretty well known. But, yeah, no. Uh, no! It's oh, no I, I don't know. I know a lot of people talk about it. So, you know. Um, so neuroplasticity relates to the ability of the brain to uh, change in uh, form uh, or in function in response to different stimuli both internal stimuli and within the body uh, as well as external stimuli so uh, when you're learning a new task for example And, and there are a lot of different drivers of plasticity which kind of relates to what what we can do in terms, especially behaviorally. So, for example, we have evidence for, especially for swallowing or for oral motor tasks. I would say more, more generally, more so than swallowing, we have evidence that uh, we can induce changes in the, uh, mostly in the function of the nervous system, but also in the form of the nervous system, when we drain uh, the oral motor system uh, either using. There is some evidence for behavioral training paradigms, but also um, a lot has been shown in terms of stimulation. So um, uh, electrical stimulation of the pharynx, uh, for example, has been shown to induce some neuroplastic changes in the brain. Uh, Sensory stimulation has also been uh, shown to induce some changes in brain activity. Uh, The problem with a lot of the stimulation studies is that they have shown kind of transients in neuroplastic events. I don't know of any strong evidence of kind of long, more long-term events. In general, we know that for long-term events, you want the um, you want the the behavior or the function to be repeated. certain amount of times and to follow some you know and i know you guys have talked before about principles of neuroplasticity and model learning and how important those are but ideally you want to follow some of these principles in order to really induce more long-term types of neuroplastic changes a lot of that i think now is being mostly applied and investigated in treatment paradigms we don't have a lot of evidence yet, but I think it's coming out because a lot of people are looking into applying some uh, behavioral exercise programs or even stimulation programs uh, or combination programs using some principles of motor learning and neuroplasticity. So hopefully we'll have more evidence on that for swallowing specific activities uh, as well. Right now, a lot of these principles come from kinesiology literature, uh, physical uh, medicine rehabilitation literature animal studies, so from other, from other fields, more so than from our sw- the swallowing field. But it is something that we, I think a lot of us are very interested in it, and a lot of us actually yeah. use a lot of these principles already. So uh, it's just yeah. a matter of time, hopefully, to produce more and more evidence. I don't want to repeat the principles because I know you guys talked about them.
0: That's okay. That's okay. Everybody explains them a little bit differently, so I just like to hear. All right. Again,
4: I can, I can address that more in the webinar if you think that will be something people want to know. Yeah, sure. The last few things is about so we talked about general neurophysiology, neurophysiology related to the cranial system, and how the brain is involved. So knowing these systems well allows allows us when we see a patient to and we clinically evaluate a patient first to better understand their symptoms and uh, and their their deficits. The deficits themselves, if again, as I said in the beginning, if we know how to carefully evaluate them, can actually tell us a lot about the nervous system. And even they can tell us a little bit about what level of the nervous system may be disrupted. So it's almost, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, do we need to be mini neurologists? And I was like, we kind of need to be (laughs) mini neurologists, you know, because I feel like that it's such important information to know. And if you miss that information, then you're really missing something. Both diagnostically and in the treatment development, and I'll give some case scenarios later on. So hopefully, this will become a little clearer because now it may sound very theoretical. But just as examples, so for example, if we're talking about the sensory system, I'm I'm going to give examples for the limbs for now, but um, I'll try to tie it with the cranial system as well, just because it's a little bit easier that way. So depending on where, at what level of neural involvement, the disruption is. The, the deficits are gonna be a little bit different. So if, we have, if you have a patient who has um, a sensory deficit in the periphery, so basically because of a virus or because of an injury, the nerve endings of some uh, sensory fibers um, have been damaged or um, in, in uh, some situations, patients with diabetes that develop uh, peripheral neuropathies you will see a sensory loss. Sensory loss will be pretty uh, significant and it will be very localized in the parts that have experienced the injury or that are for diabetes, for example, will probably be symmetrical. But most of the time, if it's uh, a localized injury, it will be um, a one side um, deficit that you will see. And now because the sensory, the motor system depends on sensory feedback, if sensory loss is complete or really severe, then potentially we may see some of the motor deficits as well because that feedback, will not, that feedback loop may not be there. But if we go, let's go higher. If you go, and I'll give a, a, an example that is a little bit more kind of tricky, if, if there's a damage to the brainstem. So a lot depends on what parts of the brainstem the damage is. So if the damage is at the level of, at the lower level of the medulla, before any crossing has happened of sensory fibers or uh, before some crossing has happened, then um, the sensory loss will be ipsilateral. However, and if we're talking about the body, we have to remember that we have two sensory tracks and one track actually crosses at the medulla, the other crosses lower in the spinal cord. So pain, temperature will have crossed already. So then the, dam- the sensory loss will be contralateral for those types of sensations, but then vibration and proprioception, they cross near the medulla. So, um, so there may be ipsilateral loss of that, of those sensations. So we, we may have what is called sensory dissociation. Uh, Brainstem lesions a lot of times also lead to ipsilateral cranial sensory deficits and contralateral body deficits because of that, that crossing that happens at different levels for the uh, long sensory tracts that we have in the body. So the level of involvement will actually tell you, and the pattern of involvement within the body and within the cranial system will actually give you a hint of where the damage approximately is, already before you even know anything else, just by evaluating the sensory system really well and understanding it. Now a lot of times clinicians do not evaluate the sensation of the body, okay? Now a lot of times clinicians don't evaluate the sensation of the oropharynx either. Although I, I suggest that we should, even if crude, crudely. I'm not saying, you know, and we'll talk about the, how do you do that. Because it's not, it's, not the, it's not rocket science, but at the same time, it's not, it's not a perfect science either. It's just brain science. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So evalu- evaluating the, the somatosensory aspects and, or taste perception, for example, in the, uh, in the referential system uh, is relatively easy and it can be uh, done relatively quickly and can give us some information about about the nervous system integrity, if you don't want to evaluate the body, which I understand, we're not experts in evaluating the body. Usually, if you in acute care at least, those types of uh, that type of neurological exam is typically in the report. So you can actually very quickly read: was it a unilateral loss of sensory perception, and what type of sensory perception was it—pain, or uh, you know, or was it proprioception and vibration? So the main the kind of like two to different tracks, and that can give you an information of where the involvement, if it involves the sensory system is. If we go to the motor system, again, I'll give a couple of examples, and then we can talk about like, how do we how do we look at for these types of involvement. Again, in the motor system, it's probably even more obvious, and I think that most people probably are more familiar with the motor system than they are with the sensory system when it comes to the cranial system. Unfortunately, I don't think we have been paying as much attention to the sensory system, somato-sensation or taste, uh, either of those. But in, the, in terms of the motor system, again, depending on where the neural involvement is, you will see we will see different manifestations of symptoms and, and completely different disease processes too. So, for example, if you have a patient with one of the inflammatory myopathies, like inclusion body myositis or dermatomyositis, you know that the the level of neural involvement is at the muscle. There is muscle inflammation, and we're still looking for the exact reasons for that, but the, that's the primary uh, manifestation of that disease, of those diseases. So that means in terms of uh, clinical symptoms, you will actually see initially uh, maybe little atrophy, but later on you will see even more and more atrophy occurring. You may see something called myotonia, which basically means that the muscles will have a hard time relaxing. The person has to spend a lot of time trying to relax the muscles, and we know that, for example, patients with some of these myopathies have a myotonia of the of the CP muscle and really really hard time to relax the CP muscle. Uh, but you will see no sensory losses at all. So those patients should have sensory perception really good. Again, diagnostic information. You would know, even, if, even before you even know the patient, you could, just by knowing that, you would know, okay, that's probably a localized problem in the muscle. I'm not saying it's perfect science either, you know, and, and the neurology has also really advanced through the years, so I just want to make, make that comment. But some of these are pretty common across different disease types. If you see a lower motor neuron damage, like in, again, a virus that hits a nerve, uh, or a tumor that, you know, that affects uh, some nuclei and uh, the cranial nerve itself. So typically damage will be psilateral on the same side as the lesion, for example. You will see severe atrophy, uh, maybe fasciculations really quickly. So again, there's, there's all these components. Uh, if the whole nerve has been affected, which typically has, you may see some sensory losses as well. Upper motor neuron damage, I think most people know you will see spasticity you know and depending on the level you may see different aspects of motor involvement uh, and ultimately you will also see atrophy later on down the road but it will be mostly atrophy from disuse other than real weakness uh, in, in that sense or you know we know patients with parkinson's disease primarily involving the basal ganglia they have a little bit of different types of manifestations now that's that's a population that is again we don't fully understand all the, why the vulvar system is affected differently in some of these patients than the limb system, but we do know that it is affected as well. So depending on where the, the neural involvement is, you can get some clinical clues that are going to be really, really important. And if you have those clinical clues and you know what they may mean, you can go backwards. Does that make sense? So that's, that's why we're talking about this. Now, in terms of actually evaluating the sensory, in them, because I know people will say, okay, but how do you do this? So really, it it all comes down to a really careful and good cranial nerve examination for the cranial system, primarily, and also to a very careful uh, and detailed uh, case history review and understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease of the patient. So those two things are very critical. I know there's a lot of emphasis, and I don't disagree with it at all, but I know there's a lot of emphasis on imaging and and making sure that you image the swelling mechanism so that you can really get the information and see what's happening inside.
0: And if you or your facility are considering a true high-definition fees imaging system, please consider our wonderful sponsor, NDOHD. NDOHD, they are a true high-definition endoscopy system created specifically for SLPs by an SLP for conducting fees studies. EndoHD can be a case-portable system as well as a carded system, depending on your needs. Additionally, NDOHD representatives can help clinicians set up their fees programs. So contact them today at www.ndohd.com forward slash contact for more information. That's www.ndohd.com forward slash contact.
4: But there's a lot of information that you can actually get even before you go there that actually ultimately will help you when you do your imaging examination as well. So um, in terms of evaluating the sensory system, the I will tell you, you know, there, as I said before, there are no really... Um, there's no excellent science in, in this, and partially is because it depends on patient participation, right? Because sensor, sensation is a perception. Unless you do uh, nerve conduction studies, which we don't do, uh, especially in the head and neck, right? There is no other way to know if the sensory system is, is responding other than by asking the patient. So patient participation is a really important factor. And really the main things that you do is you try to see if the patient can localize the different types of sensations in the different parts of the, of the face and their pharynx, for example. If they can identify localize the where you are touching, uh, localize the, identify the type of touch. So if you can, you can examine light pain with you know, a toothpick or something like that versus dull, which is more kind of crude touch or uh, dull touch. And again, you can, you can ask if they can feel the, different, the differences between sides, uh, if they can feel any difference between sides and if they can localize those types of sensations. There are some more detailed tests that people do on the tongue, for example. There's like a two-point discrimination test on the tongue. I don't know that they have been used extensively and most of the literature is actually quite old in these types of tests. Uh, it would be of interest to see if uh, somebody actually does a more Recent study to try and get some more normative values for things like that, but I don't know how good that type of discrimination actually is. The and again, you you want to identify the two different pathways because even in the cranial system they travel a little bit differently. They in the in the face they travel through for the face they travel through the trigeminal nerve, but again one passes a little bit lower in the brainstem than the crosses a little bit lower in the brainstem than the other. So that's a nice uh, way to differentiate between the two types of touches, especially if you suspect brainstem-specific lesions and where in the brainstem those lesions are. There are some higher cortical sensations, something called stereognosis, so the ability to identify objects with touch. And I know some people have done similar experiments in the, on, in the mouth, trying to identify different objects or different foods or with just the feeling of, the, uh, of what is on their tongue, with having their eyes closed. Uh, and sensory testing has to be done with eyes closed ideally, if you're just evaluating it. But some of those higher, like stereognosis and graphesthesia, which is the ability to identify writing on your skin, uh, these are higher cortical functions that are actually mediated at the parietal lobe. Now, for those to be tested, you would need to make sure that at least the basic sensations of pain, vibration, proprioception, touch, are intact first, because if they're not intact, then there could be some the results will, would not be valid. Um, and then in terms of, of taste, I do want to mention that again, again, you, you can try to test if they can identify different taste perceptions. I will say that, so there is something called the NIH toolbox. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Uh, that actually includes some uh, standardized procedures for testing sensation, and uh, testing a lot of different things, but one of them is sensation and taste. Uh, with relatively simple ways. There's a subscription fee for that, and there's an app that has a lot of these tests. Uh, But it's an easy way if somebody wanted to look at something standardized that is out there and is widely used.
0: What is that called again, Georgia?
4: The NIH Toolbox.
0: Like NIH, like where you guys get your grants from? Yes. yes. Okay, okay. That's what I thought you said, but I just wanted to make sure. Okay. Yeah, NIH
4: Toolbox, yeah. Okay. Uh, It includes a lot of different emotions, cognition. It includes a lot of different tests standardized tests, but um, it also has a couple of small tests for sensation and taste that are very simple and can be very easily done. um, Let me say one thing about the sensory system as well. Uh, So so far, I have been mostly talking about somatosensations. Again, the sensory uh, perceptions that we get from the skin and the mucosa inside the mouth, for example, but we also have to think about taste and something called a mouthfeel or texture perception. And chemesthesis, which is basically the um, ability to perceive that sensation from, from chemical stimuli that uh, usually may, may, uh, may include a little bit of pain or irritation, basically. Like, for example, eating chili peppers or something like that. That's what chemisthesis is. And I think I mentioned for, for taste perception also, the NIH toolbox can, uh, can help identify that. Uh, I think it only tests bitter and salty tastes. And I imagine that's because sweet taste is relatively well-preserved preserved in a lot of people. Um, I'm not sure why they don't do sour. But I'm sure there's a reason, but I don't, I don't know the reason for
0: that. It didn't come with a disclaimer. Yeah.
4: But, and it also tests olfaction. The NIH toolbox has a test for identifying odors. And again, these are just some tests that you can get an idea how the sensory perceptions of your patients are given that the patient will be able to participate and respond. So we can't always test them. So that's, I understand that. The motor system now, in terms of evaluating the motor system, I think most people are very familiar with that. Uh, If you have taken a good motor speech science, motor speech disorders course, or a good dysphagia course, hopefully, you probably know how to evaluate the aspects of the motor system and the the different aspects of movement as well. Um, So in evaluating the motor system, we want to look at the, we, we, we just want to first of all palpate and look at the muscle itself to see if there is any atrophy. Uh, some muscles are more obvious than others. Uh, for example, you know the masseter and the temporalis muscle here in the face are very are, are much much easier to kind of palpate. Asking asking the patient to bite down and just see if there is atrophy in these muscles or any asymmetries. Muscle tone. So if there's increased or decreased muscle tone, if there is rigidity or spasticity, really tough to understand in the cranial system. We can identify decreased tone, hypotonia a little bit easier, I think. Increased tone, unless you see a really highly clenched jaw or you see some reflexes coming back, like the jaw jerk reflex. Uh, those could be signs of increased muscle tone and increased reflexes. But it's, it's, not a, an, it's not an easy task to do necessarily in the cranial system. Strength, I think most people are very familiar. There's a lot of oral manometry devices. I know you guys have talked about some. So for the tongue, we can, uh, we can evaluate strength, possibly for the lips, although normative data is not the best. Um, and I don't know if it tells us functionally a, a lot about swallowing. Unfortunately for the pharynx, unless you have pharyngeal manometry and you can get some indication of strength, it's really hard to evaluate strength in the pharynx just by looking at it or looking at the symptoms. Coordination is another aspect of motor, the motor system that we want to evaluate. Now, coordination really refers to sequence of movements. How do people, how can people can coordinate movements that need to go together? And typically in a cranial nerve exam, we would use the kinetic rates, if you wanted to make it more functional to swallowing, you could ask somebody to take a bite, move it to the molars, chew it up, and just see how the sequence of events happens. But the reality about coordination that really is a, is a combination between rhythm and speed is that it really also depends on strength somehow. So if you don't have enough strength, sometimes that can mask coordination. So it's not diagnostic by itself. If somebody doesn't have coordination, what does that exactly mean, is it? The cerebellum is it you know what, what what is it exactly it's not very clear because there's lots of components that have to come into play for a, a sequence of movements to be well coordinated and as I mentioned before uh, testing some reflexes to see if they are back or if they are active or identifying abnormal movements like tremor uh, or uh, dy- dystonic movements and those uh, those if they affect the head and neck they could be pretty obvious uh, in the jaw and the villum possibly in the tongue. This would be easily observable, easily in quotes probably. Uh, but again, those, those would give you an indication of possibly basal ganglia involvement or if you see some ataxic movements, probably a cerebellar involvement. So again, some of this can be very diagnostic about what the neural level of involvement is. And then the, the main, and the main thing is now, okay, so now once we identify these, and I know this is not, you know, we can't really, can be a full <laughs> episode of every single thing because it's a lot of information. But the important thing is, once you identify this, what can you do to restore or improve them? Depending on what level of neural involvement has you have identified, some things are going to be easier to treat than others. That's one of the reasons why you need to know what level of involvement, what is the level of involvement exactly. If the involvement is at the muscle level, at the periphery, a lot of times the motor disability or the moral deficit is very pronounced and maybe harder actually to treat sometimes than if it is higher up in the brain so it really the level of involvement will tell you a little bit about what you can do about uh, the disorder as well and that that's where also uh, comes the need to also know about the pathophysiology of the specific disease you are dealing because some diseases are You know, you recover from some disorders and some some you don't. So you want to know that course as well. So in terms of sensation, in the limbs, sensory retraining using sensory stimulation and sensory uh, sensory motor training approaches has been partially successful for retraining the sensory system in the limbs. And there's a, uh, I mean, I'll I'll offer some references on this, but there's a lot of literature on sensory retraining for the limbs, especially post-stroke. And swallowing sensory retraining is has not been examined in great detail. We have uh, looked at kind of passive retraining with in the form of sensory stimulation. That, as probably most of us know, is not very effective, especially in the long term, or not effective for everybody at least. But this is something I, I think that would be of high clinical interest to actually try to do some sensory retraining. The way it is done possibly or not exactly the way, but kind of paralleling the what has been done in the limbs and see if that would have would have similar effects or not It may or may not I don't know And uh, motor retraining is something we have as a field tried more primarily in the form of strength, a lot less in the form of improving coordination and skill but that's something I again that is coming' it's coming up a lot and uh, I know a lot of programs now, are focusing on skill-based training for swallowing as well, which can be uh, very, uh, very, very promising.
0: What are are some examples you would give Georgia of like sensory retraining?
4: So sensory retraining. So for example, as I said, so if it's passive, it could just be in the form of sensory stimulation. So actually just having the person try different things and try to identify what what is, you know, in the, in the mouth, if we're talking about the mouth, for example. Uh, in, the, in the limbs, what has been done, uh, for example, is trying either passively applying pressure uh, or applying uh, temperature. So again, these are kind of pass- passive sensory stimulation approaches. More active sensory retraining approaches involve actually retraining the person in identifying what is touching them. And starting with, you know, kind of like bigger objects, for example, or more, more intense sensations, especially if, if sensation has been lost in that area. And then slowly with repeated exposure, really following a lot of uh, learning principles, uh, know not motor, le- actually motor learning principles, but for sensory training, which is interesting, and trying to see if slowly through that training process, the person will start identifying sensory perceptions more and more. Another thing that has been shown in the limb literature, both in stroke and in cerebral palsy, which is another area that of interest to me, uh, is that some sensory retraining of the limbs actually improves motor aspects as well, which kind of makes sense, right? Because, uh, because I, as we said, they really work together. And so I think, so, so I'm talking about something like that. So putting, for example, I'm just putting examples here you know putting things in the mouth trying to identify the taste the shape the you know in different and then in different parts of the mouth for example or different parts of the tongue it can be scary because what if somebody swallows it right <laughs> yeah. it's not it's, it's not as easy as when you do it on the skin right The what they do for the rest of the body but things like that and um because i think we don't have a really good way of evaluating it we i think i think we haven't really tested that type of Sensory retraining in great detail yet. There has been a lot more work in oromotor uh, retraining. And oromotor training, actually, there is um, a lab at the Karolinska Institute, Dr. Svensson, who has done his w- a lot of work on that. He's uh, in, uh, I think, the Department of Dentistry there, of uh, how you can uh, do different training, oromotor training, and how that actually induces increased neuroplasticity. Primarily, they have studied healthy people so that has been it would be interesting to see if that carries over to patient populations but some examples there they have used an example where one of their studies they had uh, people be trained in how to split a candy in exactly halves with their tongue all right uh and they found that after training and it was short-term training i don't remember how many days but they found that after a specific number of sessions the performance improved, so they were clo- the patient. They the, the, the weren't patients. The healthy volunteers were closer and closer to actually splitting the the candy in half, and and that's really sensory motor training. If you think about it, right? Although I think they in the paper they say motor training. I feel that some, some form of sensory motor training is possible, and uh, and it, it actually induces neuroplastic changes as they've seen as well. Now, if it is carries over to swallowing, I don't know. That's something we don't know. But, but it's something to think about, but possibilities for the future. Okay, so do you want me to quickly, quickly talk about the, clinical, the case scenarios? Yep, nope, we're perfect. So some simple examples. So if we take some case scenarios, and I'm just going to try to kind of like analyze them for you as I kind of analyze them in my head and see if, you know. So let's say somebody calls me and tells me that there's this 68-year-old male who had a subcortical stroke In the area of the internal capsule and they tell me nothing else so that's the only thing i know and i have to i'm I'm gonna go see them soon and read the reports and everything but that's all i know for now so immediately i'm starting to think what is the level of involvement so i know internal capsule well the internal capsule is comprised of wide motor fibers that are in the middle of the brain The first thing I want to know is at what level of the internal capsule. Because the internal capsule is an angled structure in the middle of the brain, right by the central structures of the thalamus and the basal ganglia, very deep in the brain. And it includes both motor fibers of upper motor neurons going down, but also includes some sensory fibers that are going up so that we can perceive the different sensations from the body and the face. So I want to know at what level of the internal capsule specifically or has been more or less uh, impacted. If other areas that are near the internal capsule may be impacted, for example, maybe the thalamus has been impacted. I wanna know the side of the lesion, right? The right or the left. Again, although the cranial system is bilateral, still innervation is mostly coming from the contralateral side. So that may have some effects on one side of the head and neck as well as of the body. Okay. to know if it's motor and sensory. So again, if, the, if I know where in the internal capsule the disruption was, I know that the anterior internal capsule has primarily motor fibers in the posterior limb of the internal capsule. We have some sensory and motor fibers. So that may help me understand if it is going to be a purely motor lesion or versus a sensory motor lesion. If it's, it's, it's one side, so because there's bilateral innervation in the head and neck, I probably know that there's some compensation hopefully or some, some redundancy, so it may make me a little less concerned about specific uh, things. Now, how exactly it will impact swallowing? I need to know these other questions so that I can try and guess, will it be mostly motor innervation of the oral phase since it's kind of higher in the brainstem? Would the pharyngeal phase be affected as well? Well, if sensation is affected, could be possibly. But it really, it really depends. It's really hard, uh, hard to know just by that information. And, and then is this a lesion that probably retraining would be good for? Well, it is in the upper levels of the brain, so probably retraining is, is totally doable. And there's a lot of white matter plasticity that can occur as well, in addition to other areas of the brain taking over. So just, just as an example of... You know, Even before I see the patient, I already have a really good idea about what a good idea. I have a relatively good idea about what may be affected. And I have also an idea about what I will look for, what I will test, what I will try to look for in the medical report, what questions to possibly ask the neurologist, for example. A different scenario kind of going to the other spectrum, just to give like a little bit of, uh, uh, let's say we have a patient who is... Uh, 60 years old, with uh, diagnosed with inclusion body myositis. It was diagnosed five years ago, but lately swallowing seems to be really affected. Immediately, knowing this is a myopathy, I know that it's the muscle level that has been primarily affected. So I know because of myopathy, that sensation will be intact, but motor innervation will be affected unless there's other things going on. So that's, you know, In terms of how it will impact swallowing, well, we said we may see difficult in relaxation of muscles, right? Myotonia with these patients. You know, we may see a little atrophy in the beginning and later on. So he's five years out, so we may see some atrophy later on as well. Now, is this a deficit that, or a disorder that we will be able to retrain? Possibly, if in the early stages there is some, Uh, indication that we may be able to retrain some of the function, but mostly we'll probably be maintaining the function. So again, knowing the, the disease process and what level of the neural axis it has affected, it really helped guide our thinking. So let me now give an opposite example. So let's say you just finished a video fluoroscopy of a patient and you found that they exhibit the typical reduced base of time to pharyngeal wall contact, reduced UVS opening, and silent aspiration of liquids, especially occurring after the swallow is completed, and pharyngeal residue with solids. So just some general symptoms that we all see uh, very, very often with our patients. How will you decide how to rehabilitate the swallowing problems of this patient? Well, you have to start answering a list of questions. What structures specifically have been impacted? What muscles or sensory components of what areas have been impacted? And these muscles and sensory areas, what cranial nerves are are being innervated by? These cranial nerves, what areas of the brainstem do they typically start from? Where where are their nuclei in the brainstem? Is this a unilateral or a bilateral issue? Where did the disruption occur? Um, At what level of the nervous system? What caused the disruption? So what type of disease or disorder are we talking about? And then after you answer all these questions and you have to really be able to answer all of them in order to know, is this, is this a problem or are these problems that I can rehabilitate, I can do retraining for, or are these problems that I can only compensate for, or can I use some type of combination of both? And how will I target retraining or rehabilitation of a specific structure or function will also depend on some of the answers that I got in the previous questions. So if you are missing any of this information along this line of questioning, then you're really just treating the symptom and you're not treating the underlying physiologic deficit. You may be effective, but you probably would would not be, will not be as effective as you could have been if you were actually basing your treatment in all these other questions and answers to those questions. So hopefully this is helpful.
0: Yeah, definitely.
4: Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I love to ask all these questions kind of ahead of time. Like it's like a gigantic
4: puzzle. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, and 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 I'm not saying that you will, you know, know all the answers by the time you see the patient. That's not the point. But it's the point of, you know, really seeing the patient and having a, a better understanding of what what you may see, what is going on, being able to answer the patient's questions. I think that's huge. Yep. A lot of times, I mean, that's all they want. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of a lot of other healthcare professors don't necessarily spend the time to answer their questions. So I feel like that. That is our role a lot of times as well. Awesome,
0: Georgia. This has been wonderful. you think,
4: you think this is helpful? I don't know. I don't know enough. Okay. Yes, very
0: much so. Very, very, very much so. Yes. Was it too
4: technical? Or... No,
0: no. This is perfect. Yeah, no. Okay. Thank you so, so much.
4: I could talk about this stuff like forever. I know you I so could. could say I a know. lot more. <laughs> things, but it's not. I, I want to make sure that it is understandable and it doesn't get. Feel free to cut anything.
0: <laughs> Do you have any, any final thoughts? Any final words for the people?
4: Final thoughts.
0: Final thoughts.
4: I feel like a lot of the final thoughts I said in the very beginning. Well, I, th- I think the biggest part is that you know swallowing is a function that we now know that can be rehabilitated not in every single patient but in a lot of our patients. And if you have the chance to restore the function that what that's what we should be doing using task specific activities, and if not, there are you know we can still maintain functions in a lot of in a lot of diseases and disorders. So I think it's understanding the brain and the nervous system is going to make you so much more powerful in, in treating this really complex you know, the umbrella yeah. <laughs> of symptoms that we call dysphagia.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, mm-hmm. Georgia. Thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.